Upon my remarking that I was looking at the grave of Lord Morrissey Morrissey's former companion, Lord Chancellor of the Exchequer Stickle, Morrissey dashed across the room and pushed me to one side to inspect the engraved nameplate upon the coffin, which presumably contained the waterlogged body of his former investigative companion turned nemesis. With little care, he lifted the lid of the funereal casket and drew his lantern close to whatever lay inside. With a sigh of relief, he let the coffin slam shut. It is indeed him. He remains dead, Morrissey. He does, Puddles, he does. Still, I wonder if this casket might tell us something more about this curious catacomb. Morrissey pulled from his pockets a portable screwdriver and began to loosen the screws upon the coffin's nameplate. You see, Puddles, how elevated this brass is. I suspect it sits upon another nameplate. With little care, Morrissey ripped the nameplate off, revealing an older, tarnished piece of brass beneath. Have you amongst your possessions some brass cleaner? Or perhaps some hydrochloric? But of course, Morrissey, what man leaves the house without either? I handed to his lordship a coarse rag and a bottle of polish which he duly applied to the brass plate. And what do we have here? I say, Morrissey, this casket originally belonged to... No, it can't be. Oh, it is, Pluddles. It is. Handsome Jack. Surely it cannot be. It is, Puddles, the multiple murder of the late 1880s. But why is Stickle interred in his grave? Because, Puddles, he and Stickle are one and the same. No. Unfortunately, yes. I was easily taken in by Stickle, or whatever his real name was. I have a blind spot for those I love, you see. Morrissey stiffened as he spoke, doubtless aware he was bordering on the impolite with his admission of sympathy for the lower classes. Doubtless this led me to not notice things that I should have. But, Morrissey, why the casket? What is the purpose of all this? This, Pluddles, is where criminals come to be reborn with new identities. Once, as our American friends might say, the trail becomes too hot, they come to this church of orphans to bury their past and take on a new identity. Well... That is until such time they meet their final demise. Oh, that was all I could say in that moment. Some of these miscreants simply move into the shadows and do not need to take on new names. Others, like Stickle here, rebuild their criminal enterprise in daylight. It is quite ingenious. But what do Archibald and Miracant want from this place? Pluddles, as ever you ask the most pertinent question. If they are connected to this enterprise, this place will be no mystery. And if they are not... With that a wind blew through the chamber, extinguishing the torches on the wall. By the light of our lanterns, I detected two figures moving through the darkness towards us. But before I could warn his lordship, I felt a knock on the back of my head, and I was rendered unconscious. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Addison, they are Dr. M. Dentith. Uh, we are in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where the election has now taken place. It has, and, and what a tidal rave, a tidal rave, tidal wave, what a tidal wave of red that election turned out to be. Mm. Yes, I mean, no no real upsets to it. A few uh, apart from, surprise. Apart from a lot of electorates down country, which are traditional national voting bases turning red, I think there were a lot of upsets in this election when you actually well, get down to electorates changing hand and a party achieving a majority in an MMP system. So well, yes, basically, that's... actually, when you say there were no upsets, it was upsets all night long. Well, I mean, 
overall, no, no, like nobody was expecting Labour to lose this election. It was a surprise that they won with the with the the majority that they've achieved. Um, and so, some of the upset, I mean, and and uh, I can't be bothered going into the New Zealand electoral system here, but the, certainly the party goat was all, party vote, not the party <laughs> no, no, goat. The, the party, party goat was no, no, going no, to no, go no, Labour. Tell, tell the listeners about this mysterious party goat because I feel that's part of the election that no one has talked about. Uh, you you know as well as I do that the first rule of the party goat is that you do not talk about the party goat. Now the party vote, we can talk about that, and it was it was fairly well, obvious that was going to go to Labour, but. As the what? Party stoat. No, nor the party coat. What about the par- party float? No, the party moat, I mean, that, that doesn't work anymore. It, it was drained several decades ago, but no. And then, of course, you've got Labour's party gloat. Well, yes, there's been no small amount of that going on, at least in private, I'm sure. Um, what do we have? I mean, we had um, Chloe Swarbrick winning the an electorate for the Greens in Auckland Central. I don't know if that was entirely expected. Uh, the Maori Party getting getting uh, taking an electorate off Labour. I don't know if anyone was expecting that either, but that was that was good. Um, but yes, I think in terms of conspiracy theories and what have you, we might go might save that for the uh, the bonus episode towards the end there. But as it happens, um, the election occurred, uh, and it was quite upsetting, despite what Josh said. Well, certainly upsetting to National. Wouldn't deny that. Very upsetting to National. Mm. Anyway, we're back on Conspiracy Theory Now, Josh, I do have to ask the question, because everybody who's watching the video of this podcast will be thinking it. Are you masturbating whilst on camera? No. No, I know that's the style these days. I know important gentlemen in in the States are doing it, but um, it's just not my cup of tea. Have you ever masturbated on camera whilst recording this podcast? I can honestly say I have not done such a thing. Actually, I wasn't aware have. that was a no, thing no, people actually, did, no, no, to be so, honest, so what, I, actually, me, what I should have said is, have you ever accidentally masturbated on camera whilst recording the podcast? Then you could have made a denial, and then people would have gone, didn't actually ask mm, the real question. Too specific, that denial, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we are, of course, referring to the case of a guy whose name I've forgotten. Is it Jeffrey Tubin? That sounds about right. Um... And yeah, frank, frankly, I've sort of I've got the gist of it, and I have not wanted to investigate any further to find out the full details of it because I don't think my life would be enriched by knowing anymore. What I find fascinating about the case is the number of media types in the US who are essentially running the argument of, but haven't we all masturbated on camera mm. during a Zoom call in the past? And people are going, no, 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 actually. Most of us haven't, and most of us would be mortified at the very thought of it. Hmm. I saw one one take from an article suggesting that the real problem is just simply that there's such a social taboo around masturbation. And, I mean, there is. And we, we, should, we, should, we should just be doing it all the time in any circumstance, and suggested also that had the guy actually been having sex on camera, that wouldn't have been as bad, and I don't follow that line of reasoning. I mean, it was a work on a call, Zoom call. Amongst, high, amongst high-powered journalists. Mm. The idea you start ramming your partner whilst discussing the plans for tomorrow's ed- editorial really doesn't seem like the kind of thing which is acceptable in a work meeting. I mean, I don't have an office job, even though mm. I'm recording this in an office, so I actually do have a job that takes place in an office, but it's not an office job. But as far as I'm aware, we do not have sex during the job. 
Not that no. I think there's anything wrong about having sex on the job. Many professions actually rely upon that. It's just that it's not normal in my workplace, and it certainly no. isn't normal in the media workplace, unless I'm very much mistaken. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so perhaps we should pledge here and now that the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy shall remain a masturbation-free zone. Can you make that promise? I can. Can you guarantee it? I mean, I'm saying, yes, I can guarantee it. Five episodes later, because, oh, sorry. Sorry. Well, we'll see. That's our promise to you, listeners. If, If you hear any dubious sounds in the background, it could be any number of things won't be that thing. Actually, no. Let's let's make a deal. If we get five more patrons in the next month, we can guarantee in perpetuity there'll be no masturbation taking... Actually, no. Now, I've suddenly realised the, the problem with this. If there are people out there who want us to masturbate on camera, mm. that will then make them not want to pledge. But if you do want to ensure there's never any masturbation on camera... Become a become a patron. If you get five new patrons over the course of October and November, we can guarantee in perpetuity there will be no masturbation occurring during this show. That's a mm. cast iron guarantee. Yes, I don't. I I, I I don't want to speculate on what might happen if we don't get to those number of patrons i mean the, the, an element of spite might come into play and we might just start doing it but no and, no no it's not no, to go and, there and revenge sex is taken mm. to be the best sex there is well that's they say although it is it's also supposed to be a dish best served cold and i don't quite know how those two metaphors mesh. and i think i think maybe we should drop this line of conversation before i start um, saying sex with corpses mm. yes anyway it's an episode of Pog- of 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 conspiracy show, people. Mm. Um, I I'm just seeing how badly I peaked on that. Anyway, such was my desire to change the topic. Uh, we have an episode. Uh, <clears throat> we have an episode featuring a uh, paper by a friend of the show, Brian L. Keeley, um, who has said to me that if he ever teaches another course on conspiracy theories, actually would be tempted to assign some of these podcasts as listening for his students. Mm, well, that's very flattering. I expect it'll get more flattering as we go into this episode, because I, I don't know if you picked this one specifically for me, but the topic of, of, of this conspiracy theory is right up my alley. It is. Ooh, now, right up. We were going to have to All cover this eventually. And it is actually chronologically and numerically the next episode, but I knew there's going to be a bit of talk of agnosticism, and I know mm. how much you like to ride the agnostic boat. Right, so let's hop aboard, play the chime, and get down to it. And watch out for that goat! This week we are talking about God is the Ultimate Conspiracy Theory by Brian L. Keeley, published in Episteme in 2007. And this is a special issue of Episteme, in which every single article is on conspiracy theories, and it's edited by none other than David Cody. Now, I do want to get one thing out the gate immediately. There is a big debate amongst philosophers as to how we're meant to pronounce the name of this journal. Because, as Josh has just said, most people think it's episteme, but other people will, might think that actually because it's Greek and it's ancient Greek, it's probably episteme. 
And the thing is, nobody knows. Ooh. The other thing to note is that by 2007, when this collection comes out, my work on my PhD has just begun. Right, so as we go through this, imagine a young, fresh-faced M, not that you're ever not fresh-faced, I have to say, uh, struggling, hunched over a desk, pounding out that PhD. It's, a, it's, it's, it's an image that warms the cockles of my heart. It warms someone's cockles. Indeed, well, let's not get into that. Now, this paper, it's, it's actually it's a bit of an interesting one because it's it's kind of more a... Uh, a paper in philosophy of religion than it is philosophy of conspiracy theories, but um, let's start with the abstract, which reads, <coughs> Traditional secular conspiracy theories and explanations of worldly events in terms of supernatural agency share interesting epistemic features. This paper explores what can be called supernatural conspiracy theories by considering such supernatural explanations through the lens of recent work on the epistemology of secular conspiracy theories. After considering the similarities and the differences between the two types of theories, the prospects for agnosticism, both with respect to secular conspiracies and the existence of God, are then considered. Arguments regarding secular conspiracy theories suggest ways to defend agnosticism with respect to God from arguments that agnosticism is not a logically stable position and that it ultimately collapses into atheism, as has been argued by N. Russell Hansen and others. I conclude that such attacks on religious agnosticism fail to appreciate the conspiratorial features of God's alleged role in the universe. And uh, from, talk of, from talk of God goes straight into talk of Donald Rumsfeld. Yes, I was about to say what's interesting is that this abstract is very high-minded, and yet the first thing we get is a discussion of that infamous speech by Donald Rumsfeld about known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. Which, mm. as Kelly points out, was something that Rumsfeld was, ah, I can't even say roundly, was roundly mocked for at the time. But as epistemologists have argued, isn't actually a stupid point at all. No, I mean, I, I think, I don't know, people just objected to the fact that he suddenly launched into this into this vaguely uh, poetic metaphysical discussion on the limits of knowledge um, in what was otherwise a, a you know, in what, what it, it sort of had the tone of um, somebody trying to bluff his way through an answer. But the, the the fact remains that he does make a very good point. There are things that we know. There are things that we know we don't know, and then there are things we don't even know we don't know. And the things we when you're worried about intelligence, particularly intelligence about activities going on overseas, the things that we know we don't know and the things that we don't know are even happening and have no suspicion about are the, the really worrying things. So to talk about 9-11, for example, it was known that there were movements overseas that were against the United States of America due to its activities in the Middle East. But depending on who you talk to, it was completely unknown to the American intelligence apparatus that a major terrorist attack was being planned for the continental United States. Now, that is contentious because there is 
quite a lot of evidence indicated that the intelligence apparatus in the US, if they had acted on things they had known, could have prevented 9-11 from occurring. But there is one version of the story where they go, look, 9-11 was a complete surprise because we did not know to be suspicious of this kind of attack. It really was an unknown unknown. Mm. Um, And so Brian himself says, obviously Rumsfeld has no answer to offer here, but he does want to claim that in the case of national security threats, we do in fact know one thing about unknown unknowns. We know that it is extremely likely that unknown unknowns exist. And that that resonates a lot with what Lee Basham Mm. was talking about, with the idea of there being at least one malevolent conspiracy going on in the background at this point in time. Yes, and I think this paper certainly show, shows shows that um from the looks of things lee lee had been uh, rubbing off on brian at this point there, there there's a bit of uh, and obviously he he specifically cites um lee basham's uh res- resilience and ubiquity paper um and we can see bits of it coming in as it goes but um he uh brian goes on to make the interesting point that that um and this is something, again, actually, kind of reminds you of, of the likes of Lee Basham stuff about local context and um, uh, the, 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 the number of unknown unknowns there might be sort of being a feature of the world around us. He says, um, for example, Rumsfeld is speaking from his position as the United States Secretary of Defense. It might well be that his opposite number in the Sultanate of Brunei has fewer grounds to worry about some completely unexpected threat. For a variety of reasons, Brunei has far fewer and much less diverse enemies than does the United States. By the same token, it might not be the case that all domains of knowledge have this feature. Knowledge of national security threats does, but does my knowledge of what's likely to be found in my local grocery store? Probably not to any significant degree. Why does the domain of national security have this feature? I suggest that part of the answer is that it is a realm in which conspiracies are rife, and conspiracies have interesting epistemic features, as philosophers have recently begun to explore in earnest. And so from from there, that's that's sort of the introduction, I think, that does a little bit of scene setting. Uh, The next section of the paper is basically a a recapping of um, Brian's previous works. Um, In particular, you'll recall from the very first of his papers we looked at, um, he worked, he sort of, he he used the analogy of Hume talking about miracles to say, can we talk about conspiracy theories the same way, and decided possibly not. and that 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 um, is a nice way of bringing in uh, the the sort of the religious angle that comes into this paper. So he says. The impetus of my investigation into the epistemology of conspiracy theories, in particular those which seem particularly dubious, and then lists off a bunch of dubious conspiracy theories, was the question whether there might be a Humean analysis of such theories that would identify them as incredible a priori. In other words, can we identify a class of conspiracy theories, I call them unwarranted conspiracy theories, or UCTs, that were by definition incredible? My conclusion was that, alas, such an analysis fails. The chief problem is that there is a class of quite warranted conspiracy theories about such a events as Watergate, the Iran-Contra affair, and so on, that there is no principled way of distinguishing a priori the two classes from one another. And this leads Brian on to his discussion about how there's no mark of the incredible, because the standard Humean tactic on miracles is that because miracles are incredible, i.e. miracles don't occur, then when someone talks about a miracle, that's prima facie a rationale for going... I don't need to believe that occurred because miracles are by definition impossible. But the whole problem with the problem of conspiracy theory is there 
there is no Mark of the Incredible. And as Brian says, there is no Mark of the Incredible, as it were, as Hume argues there is for reports of miracles. As a result, contrary to being able to reject conspiracy theories out of hand prior to any investigation, we ought to adopt an agnostic attitude with respect to conspiratorial claims. Or, initially at least, as time passes and investigation ensues, we will generally come to lump the given theory in either with the Watergate, the credible, or with the faked lunar landings, the incredible. Yes, and reading that, I my, my ears pricked up. Agnosticism, you say? Now, I might Josh, have a thing or two to say about agnosticism. Why might your ears prick up at the notion of agnosticism? Set the scene. Well, uh, th- this, this will become more... Um, more pertinent as we get further into the paper, but um, while I never went on to the the dizzying heights of a doctorate, as did the good Dr. Dentith, um, I did my master's uh, master of arts in philosophy, in which I wrote a uh, master's dissertation, and agnosticism was kind of the subject of it, or or at least indirectly it was. My um, dissertation was on the compatibility of fallibilism and faith, and I argued towards the end that agnosticism, as it was first conceived of by Thomas Henry Huxley, um, essentially is fallibilism applied to the um, religious sphere, so it all works out nicely. Um, now, as we, we'll, when we in a little while, we'll get into a discussion on the merits of agnosticism or not, and I may have a thing or two to say. You may indeed. Now, I want to interject here and say what's interesting is that Brian, in putting forward the idea that we should adopt an agnostic attitude, or as he will say later, later on in the paper, a humble agnosticism, is kind of a response in my eyes to Lee Basham's idea of the pragmatic rejection, in that Lee's response is, there's nothing we can do. Brian's response is, we just just be agnostic about these things until such time we have more evidence. Mm. So having recapped what he'd spoken about in the past, he then looks um, into the realm of philosophy of religion, saying... Initially, I took a discussion in the realm of philosophy of religion and saw what light it shed on the epistemology of conspiracy theories. In the present paper, I want to view questions of religious epistemology through the lens of the philosophy of conspiracy theories. What happens when one looks at God and the supernatural more generally as a sort of conspiracy? And I think here is where he mentions in a footnote, um, Lee Bashan's claims, as you recall, when we talked about afterthoughts on conspiracy theory, resilience, and ubiquity, um, Lee Basham, in, in trying to show that the, the conspiracy theory is essentially baked into our very notion of society, talked about how um, a, a certain kind of of religious thought is is almost overtly conspiratorial when you have these supernatural agents um, acting in secret one way or another, uh, towards a towards a common end, whether that's sort of, you know, the, the, the forces of God versus the forces of, of Satan or whatever you want. Um, that certainly is, is, has all the form of a conspiracy theory. Um, and it's as old as religion. Now, what's interesting about this, to my mind, is the way that Brian's first paper is taking Hume on miracles and applying it to the philosophy of conspiracy theories. Now he's taking his reply to Hume on miracles via philosophy, uh, the philosophy of conspiracy theories and going, can we now make the trek back to the philosophy of religion? Hmm. And so to do so, he starts talking about supernatural conspiracy theories. So that, those are conspiracy theories about the show Supernatural? 
No. Has that ended yet? Uh, Can in it about, end? In about four weeks' time. They're into the last set of episodes now. How many seasons did it run for? 17? No, 14? A bit, it's a very... It's a, it's a big number. The show is running out of steam. I'm still watching it because I want to see how it ends. It probably should have ended quite a long time ago. Didn't, yeah, didn't it basically end after like season five or something? It did, no. but it was very popular. Mm. And anyway. it has continued no, to be not, very not... popular for another nine years. Mm. So, I mean, while you probably could come up with certain conspiracy theories as to why the show Supernatural stuck around for as long as it did, that's not actually what we're talking about now. Um, it's conspiracy theories that um, include intentional but supernatural agents who can't be detected on account of them being supernatural, um, who are essentially working in a kind of secret to achieve a common goal. That, who are that these supernatural agents? Or who is the supernatural agent? Well, indeed. he. So to, to um, give an example of this, he talks to Boethius, the medieval philosopher Boethius, whose name I remember from philosophy, but it has been so, so he, long now. Uh, he was a 6th century philosopher in Rome who wrote The Consolations of Philosophy. He was... I don't. I think he became a Christian when he was imprisoned. I don't know that he was Christian before his incarceration. The Consolations of Philosophy is famous in philosophy for a variety of reasons, one of which is in the foreword to the Consolations of Philosophy. Boethius admits there are mistakes in the text, but they've been put there deliberately for the careful reader to discover which is the cleverest thing a philosopher has ever done, is to go, yes, there are mistakes in this text, you're quite right. When you find them, you're very clever. I knew you'd find them. I put them there for you to find. They're definitely not mistakes I made. No, no, they're deliberately in there to mislead people. Wow, so he's obviously a very clever person. And one of the things he talked about, and I'm sure this must have been when I, the reason why I studied him, is his, his talk on the problem of evil, which is one that comes up in metaphysics all the time, basically the idea that um, if God is omnipotent, why does evil exist in the world, is, is, is the short answer. Uh, it's a fact that, that bad e evil and suffering exists, and surely if God were all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, he would be able to stop that, so why hasn't he? Um, Boethius's solution to it is essentially that there is no such thing as evil. What we perceive as evil is just simply a limitation of, of us as human beings who are unable to fully comprehend providence or, or God's divine plan. If we understood the entirety of his plan, then we'd know why these things are necessary and um, so that it isn't actually evil whatsoever. And the reason why Boethius, well, one of the reasons why Boethius comes up with the idea of providence explaining the appearance of evil in the world is that Boethius is in prison when he's writing the Consolations of Philosophy for a crime he did not commit. Or at least a crime he claims not to have committed. He was charged with treason. He was thrown into prison. It was very likely he was going to be executed. He was going, if there is a good and benevolent God out there, why would that God allow me, an innocent, to be punished for a crime I never committed? How can I explain this evil that's occurring to me? Ah, the best way to explain it is that some greater good will eventuate because of this, and so it's not really evil at all. 
It's part of God's grand plan to bring about a greater good somewhere down the line. Mm. And so Brian picks up on this saying, My contention is that this invocation of an unknown to us plan that explains why things have happened the way that they have has some elements of the kinds of secret plans that secular conspiracy theorists use to explain why things have happened the way that they have. Um, but of course, you don't necessarily have to just um, rely on on the idea of providence for a sort of conspiratorial thinking, because you may be of the sort of religious school, the idea that um, there are forces of evil um, at work in the world, in the world that Satan or whoever is is actually is actively seeking um, to to combat God's plan, and that the evil evil exists in the world because there are actually these supernatural evil agents seeking to further it. Um, and then actually mentions the, the, the nice, um, nice sort of crossover here that occurs when you get people who look at stories of UFO sightings and try to reevaluate them essentially as encounters with supernatural angelic beings. So whether that's the people going through the Bible, talking at the, the, the various um, sites people have supposedly saw there and, and mapping them to UFOs or, or mapping modern UFO sightings to actually being um, encounters with the divine so that you actually have a case of uh, sort of secular UFO-style conspiracy theories and supernatural conspiracy theories overlapping, which is um, nicely symmetrical. Yes, and actually there's quite, there is actually some very interesting work on that, both with respect to re-evaluating UFO encounters as interactions with supernatural beings and other work which goes, UFO encounters seem an awful lot like witch abduction stories, which indicates that maybe we can explain one of those away. We can probably explain the other ones away as well. Mm. Now, at this point, uh, Brian points out that supernatural conspiracy theories do do differ from secular ones in some ways, but in most of the most of the time, we can work around it. I mean, first of all, we do say that conspiracies need to have more than one person behind them, and if we're just going for the article uh, f for the idea that everything is is simply God's plan, God, there's only one God. If you're a, a Christian, at least. Well, no, no, no. Let me interject or, there because. People who are fans of the tripartite God, the idea that God is three in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, might be able to get away with a technicality by going, well, yes, technically we're monotheists, but our God is made up of three parts, so mm. technically could conspire with itself. But, but in either case... We, we, you could make the argument that sort of omnipotence and omnipresence um, kind of kind of makes God a special case, and maybe we should allow for that there. Um, Keeley has argued in the past that I'm swapping between calling him Brian and calling him Keeley again. I shouldn't do that. Uh, that conspiracy theories are, tend to be malevolent. Um, which would certainly apply to satanic, uh, satanic, satanic conspiracies, but but probably you wouldn't want to say that um, uh, divine quote unquote conspiracies are, are malevolent. Um, but he decides to go with something that uh, Charles Pigton came up with in Complots of Mischief: the idea that um, conspiracy theories should be at least morally suspect, although not necessarily morally wrong. Yes, and this is a a line that I use a lot, which is: it doesn't really matter whether your intentions are good or bad. If people think you're acting secretively, 
they are going to be suspicious of what you're doing no matter what you intend to achieve. So the idea that someone is acting in a secretive manner means it's, it allows you to make the move to say what you're doing is suspicious because otherwise why would you keep it secret from me? You simply can't make the move to the claim that that behavior is sinister because sometimes people do secretive things for good reason, such as organizing a surprise party. Although she mm. point out that Brian kind of poo-poos the idea of surprise parties does, yes. fitting into the schema of what counts as a conspiracy appropriate for a conspiracy theory. Mm. And um, sticking on the notion of secrecy, uh, another another sort of possible point of difference here is that that providence isn't so much secret as it's just unknowable. It's it's we we literally can't know it. Not because it's hidden from us, but but, but because it's the sort of thing that our human brains are not capable of of, of grasping. Um, so Brian says, if Boethius is correct, God is not hiding his intentions from us. We are constitutionally incapable of understanding his motivations and plans due to our necessarily limited, temporally bound perspective. And goes on to say that God, as a providential entity, is the ultimate unknown unknown. Which is why Donald Rumsfeld mm. declared war on God back at the beginning of the War on Terror. Mm. So... The next section of um, this paper is titled Agnosticism with Respect to the Supernatural. And uh, as we saw in the, in the abstract, he refers to Norwood Russell Hansen's criticism of the agnostic position um, and claimed that the evidence used to support agnosticism better supports atheism. Now, I'm going to... I'm going to introduce a def definition here but, and, because it's one that I'm going to argue against shortly. I, I assume when we're talking about agnosticism here, we're talking about the position that there you can't say that God exists and you also can't say that God doesn't exist because there isn't sufficient evidence for either position. Now, um, Hansen claims that the problem with the agnostic position like this is that it, it, it pulls a fast one that it changes tack halfway through its argument. Um, so Hansen says that the agnostic begins by assessing God whether or not God exists as if he were a fact-gatherer. Um, so in other words, the agnostic will say, well, no, there isn't. You, we, we look for evidence. We don't find enough to support the notion that God exists, so we can't believe that. Hansen continues, he ends by appraising the claim's denial not as a fact-gatherer, but as a pure logician. So in other words, the, the agnostic says, okay, I've looked for evidence for God, haven't found any, so I'm going to reject it there. Um, but in terms of whether or not you should believe that God doesn't exist, well, you can't prove a negative. That's just a, a logical fact. So that's my reason for it there. Um, so Hansen says, but the consistency demands that he either be a fact-gatherer with both the claim and its denial, or else play logician with both. So he sort of says there's an inconsistency going on there, and that to be properly consistent, the agnostic should just be an atheist. So basically, the agnostic, according to Hansen, is on the horns of a dilemma, and they should either go the evidential way and say there's just not enough evidence to believe in the existence of God, so I'm an atheist, or they should go, well, logic dictates I can't prove a negative, but at the same time, I should bite that bullet. Mm. Now, of course, the problem with these objections is that they fail to contend with Faith and Fallibilism, Certainty and Doubt, published by Edison 1999. Um, the reason why they probably don't contend with this is that it was just my 
dissertation, and a copy of it exists in the Department of the Philosophy Department of the University of Auckland, uh, and on my bookshelf, and nowhere else in the world. Um, so probably they can be. Are forgiven you sure it's not, not available this. electronically through the University of Auckland now? Most of the I don't know. Do they scan been, things? Uh, they they are digitizing a whole bunch of stuff now, so it actually might be available yeah. online. I've never looked. I should, I suppose. Maybe it is. Because if um, you do, you'll find out whether it's been read. Because they all, they they track downloads on those mm. things now. You might go, oh, I'm really really popular. I should set up an academia.edu account and a Phil People account and just see all the references start flowing in. You might be a superstar in the world of agnosticism. Well, now you put it that way, I kind of don't want to, to find out and just live with that fantasy in my mind rather than have it have it dashed. But the point is, so the point of my dissertation um, essentially is that faith is compatible with fallibilism for a given definition of fallibilism and a given definition of faith. Um, and the point that I argued for is that agnosticism is best understood as the extension of fallibilism into the religious sphere, and that fallibilism is best understood not as a specific position, but it's more of an attitude. So it's it's not it's not it's not a, a belief, it's an attitude towards belief, and should be used more like a rule of thumb. In, in the, it's, it's more similar to the likes of Occam's Razor than it is to any other position. Um, so fallibilism doesn't make any claims about the truth or falsehood of particular propositions. It just reminds us that no matter what proposition we believe to be true or false, we should be open to the possibility that it could be revised on the basis of future evidence because we human beings don't know what we don't know. Um, so... Fallibilism, fallibilism is a statement about us more than it is a statement about any particular belief. And so uh, applying that to the religious sphere, you come up with an idea of agnosticism, which is not a position. So agnosticism is, isn't a position as to whether or not God exists or God doesn't exist. Uh, it's not on the spectrum of atheism versus theism. What it is is an attitude that says whatever you do believe um, – you should be willing to accept that, to willing to revise that belief um, on future evidence. And um, the immediate problem there, of course, is that that doesn't that kind of sounds contrary to the idea of of faith. And so, I in, in the dissertation, I do a bit of a discussion on the nature of faith and how we can um, different different ways of perceiving it and seeing that there are ways and 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 what I think are productive ways of thinking of faith, which do make it compatible with a fallibilist agnostic attitude. And the, the and then the main point of it that I sort of made towards the end is that the term agnosticism was first coined by Thomas Henry Huxley, who was kind of Charles Darwin's right hand man. Um, and when he talks about agnosticism, he very clearly is using it as a fallibilist attitude towards the question of whether or not God exists, basically. Um, he says he doesn't, he doesn't use it, uh, does, doesn't argue in those particular words, but a bunch of the things he says that's, that's basically is advocating fellow's position. So there you go. So in my view of it, um, if we were to be properly agnostic, uh, that kind of avoids all of this criticism um, entirely. But uh, that's not the view of agnosticism. Sorry, I, 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 I replied so, there with a Douglas Adam quote. Well, that about wraps it up for God. Pretty much does.
Um, anyway, that's that's all kind of immaterial, really. I just I just can't resist the urge to um, to jump on my own my own little topic of expertise. Toot your own horn, um, blow your own trumpet. Mm. Yeah, I, we swore that we weren't going to do that in this podcast. We just, well, actually, no, we haven't got the number of patrons yet, so who knows? Yes, Maybe I yes. could blow my own horn. Well, precisely. Live on camera. Anyway, um, the, the, the point, digression aside, the point of this is that the another problem um, with this is the idea that the, the fact that you can't prove a negative that's an objection that applies to basically anything imaginary, anything you 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 can say um, as an objection to the um, to to um, atheism. It also applies to anything, basically. Y- yes, you can't prove that God exists. You also can't prove that or that God doesn't exist. You also can't prove that unicorns don't exist or that flying magical pixies don't exist. Or you know, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. So, what does this mean for conspiracy? What does this mean for conspiracy theories? Well, so are you asking what are the implications for mm. conspiracy theories? Well, the implications are when looking at conspiracies, and I'm actually reading your own notes here, the rule of thumb above doesn't apply because, as has been said before, conspirators are actively hiding the truth from you in a way that the objects of scientific investigation don't, brackets, we hope. Now, this seems like an updated version of Keeley's argument from Of Conspiracy mm. Theories, which is the argument that nature doesn't lie, but conspirators do. So as Brian points out, one of the problems with talking about falsificationism when it comes to talk of conspiracy theories is that when it comes to investigating nature, nature tells us no lies. The problem is when you're investigating anything in the social sciences, the things you are interrogating often turn out to be human beings, and human beings often do lie about their internal lives or what they've been up to. So nature doesn't lie, but conspirators do. And that way, because we know that conspirators might be actively hiding what they do, it's very hard to apply this rule of thumb to entities of that type. Mm. So once again, my ears pricked up um, at the next section when uh, Brian says... Your ears are pricking a lot at the moment. They they sure... Well, that that, that paper had this effect on I mean, me. At this stage, your ears must be levitating above your head. Well, they were when I first read it. They're not, I've obviously, I've calmed down since then, which is why they're not showing up on video at the moment. But yes, I, I can assure you that was the case. Uh, But no, Brian says, we human investigators are fallible and we know this to be the case. And at which point I'd look directly in the camera and go, huh? 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 And history is rife with credible conspiracies. This is one upshot of the Rumsfeld epigraph. Because, I argue, of the conspiratorial nature of the world, we know that there are not only national security threats that we, we know we do not know about, what a known terrorist group is currently planning, but we also know with as much certainty as we know anything else about the socio-political realm that there are threats about which we do not even know we are ignorant. By their very nature, these unknown unknowns are impossible to factor into any kind of a calculus of threat assessment, but there is a lesson to be drawn here, and that is a significant degree of humility with respect to our threat assessments. Humility, again, is I think another thing that, that pops up a lot in the fallibilist literature further. 
The point is not simply that we should acknowledge our ignorance and fallibility of reasoning. Surely we should always take our reasoning with a grain of salt. The point here is to make it very clear that in some select domains and under certain conditions, we would be prudent to be especially sceptical more so than normal. And to me, everything he just said describes a fallibilist position, not not, not a sceptical one at all. Um, and so if if... As I argued, we can see agnosticism as just a kind of fallibilism, and he's arguing what sounds an awful lot like fallibilism to me. Frankly, I think this 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 just makes me look better and better. Indeed, this is, this is confirming everything you've always thought. Mm. Also, this to a very large extent goes to show that the characterization of Keeley's work in the early days is inaccurate because this is this is perfectly in tune with particularism. Mm. Um, so we now come to the question of what is God more like? Is God more like? Um, actually, sorry, I've skipped it. I've skipped a little bit. The the, the conclusion. No, no, of no, 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 no. See, what, no, you, you, see, you should you, you should have put that there. What is God more like? The Loch Ness monster or a conspiracy theorist? That's how you should have gone there. I will do Yes, is God like the Loch Ness monster, or is he like a conspiracy theorist? Now, the reason why you say that is because um, Hansen basically says pe- people, the, the, the likes of the, the Donald Rumsfeld, and then um, he also refers it to Carl Sagan, who says a similar sort of thing that um, absence of proof is not proof of absence. Now, this this is this is the the, the idea that unknown unknowns exist. But Hansen says, well, actually. When we're talking about, when we're investigating in the real world, absence of proof pretty much is proof of absence. And if you deny that, then we get in the position of the fact that we can't deny the existence of anything. The Loch Ness Monster, you know, Brontosaurus with Mokelemomembe, the Brontosaurus-looking thing in Africa, and any other pixies and whatever else you want to come up with. Um, when we're talking about objects of scientific investigation, people have looked for the Loch Ness Monster. They've sunk probes. They've sonared the crap out of Loch Ness. And nothing's come up. And we should be able to say, actually, we th- th- this, th- this is good enough evidence that the Loch Ness Monster just doesn't exist. Yeah, if we keep looking for something and we find absolutely no evidence of that thing, the fallibilist is obliged to go probably should suspend judgment or even go slightly further and go, actually, the probabilities here are given a sustained investigation into this topic and no positive evidence accruing. I am conditionally allowed to say, if no new evidence comes to light, that probably it's not worth believing in this Mm. thing. Yeah, and again, fallibilism isn't even about suspending judgment. It's believe what you want to believe, just acknowledge... There's always that possibility there, but so the point is, um, so we we have objects of sort of investigation where the idea that um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence doesn't really apply. But then we have the likes of conspiracy theories where conspirators are actively hiding from us, in which case it probably is reasonable to say, well, evidence of absence isn't actually, sorry, evidence of absence isn't actually evidence, absence of evidence, I'm going to tangle myself up with this, um, because we have people actively um, trying to to conceal themselves from us. So, 
Um, Brian says, unlike with the brontosaurs, by hypothesis, an omniscient god knows what we would consider evidence for his existence, and an omnipotent god could certainly leave only the evidence he wished to be found. Looking for a god that does not wish to be found would be quite a futile task. If god can be thought of as a kind of conspirator, he would surely be the ultimate conspirator. He's gone from the ultimate unknown unknown to the ultimate conspirator. Uh, Brian continues, my suggestion is that the domain of beings whose power and knowledge far outstrip our own are precisely the kind of domain where we ought to be especially careful in trusting the outcome of our reasoning. I believe that it is that humility which is the basis for agnosticism with respect to God. Um, so there, so, so there the claim is that, um, you know, we have different cases. Um, if we're looking for positrons, then it's one sort of case, um, but if we're looking for conspiracies and possibly God, then it's the other and different rules apply. Now, I got a little bit flummoxed at this point because he says, however, in this paper, I'm arguing that the existence of the supernatural also calls for the Sagan rule, which I thought was the opposite of what he'd been saying up until now. The Sagan rule being the Sagan, Carl Sagan, Donald Rumsfeld idea, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. I thought he'd just finished saying that, so that, but that is... The, the case of God is a case where that doesn't apply, and he's saying it does apply. So I was a little bit lost there. Maybe th he's just going back to Hansen and saying he agrees with Hansen's position. I'm not I sure. think the point here he's making is that when you start looking at the debate in theism versus atheism, there's it becomes a much more interesting debate than, say, between science, scientists and pseudo-scientists, in which you can kind of see there's a domain issue going on here between people who accept the scientific method versus those who don't. But when it comes to the terms of debate around theism versus atheism, there's a whole bunch of reasonable atheists and reasonable theists who go, well, actually, the debate here isn't just about evidence. The debate here is about what even counts as evidence. So there's a big worry here that the debate in this do domain goes well beyond just a, simp a simple evidential hearing. There's also a, a much larger meta-debate about what the terms of the debate turn out to be. So I think that's mm. where the Sa Sagan rule is coming into effect here. Right out. And at any rate, so, so we reach the conclusion, um, and uh, Brian rounds everything out by saying, At the very least, I believe I've shown that this is all grist for the mill, that considering theological questions about the existence of God in the light of the strange epistemology of conspiracy theories enriches the discussion in interesting ways. God's alleged mysterious ways are not unlike the alleged secret and mysterious activities common to secular conspiracy theories, and just as it is impossible to reject even the more dubious secular conspiracy theories a priori, requiring us to adopt an agnostic stance until such time as the evidence begins to roll in, similarly it is prudent to adopt an agnostic attitude with respect to God. At the very least, considering belief in God as the ultimate conspiracy theory indicates that agnosticism is not the logically bankrupt position folks such as Russell Hansen worry it is. And I also don't think that agnosticism is in any way a logically bankrupt position. But then I think of it as something slightly different, I think, from what they're talking about. Um, so there you go. Interesting, an interesting paper. It doesn't really further the debate around the philosophy of conspiracy theories, but does an interesting job of mapping it back onto the philosophy of religion.
Yes, it does feel like it's the second half of of conspiracy theories, where you start from Hume on mir- miracles to point out there's no mark of the incredible when it comes to these things which we pejoratively call conspiracy theories. Thus, we should actually be particularists about conspiracy theories and appraise them on the evidence, and then takes that argument and goes, ah, can we now make that flow back to a discussion in the philosophy of religion? We can, the circle is closed, everything is complete. Now we can Mm. ascend to Godhood. Excellent. I'll look forward to that after we finish recording. Now that's all we have for you in this episode of uh, Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. Have we anything else to say before we start plugging the pod, uh, the Patreon episode? No, we've got more articles from this special issue, including... Mm -hmm. A bit of a debate as to whether one of the papers we're even going to talk about. Because there's one really odd paper in this special issue which isn't really about conspiracy theories at all. And I'm kind of wondering whether we should even bother looking at it. We'll have that discussion fairly soon. But otherwise, I think basically we should move on to the exciting bonus content that our patrons can listen to very shortly and remember if five of you become patrons by the end of november we can guarantee there'll be no tooting of anyone's horns on this podcast ever again Mm. or indeed ever Mm. but as to the content of that bonus episode what are we going to talk about but a bit of post-election conspiracy roundup um we have to mention Rudy Giuliani, to mention Rudy being Giuliani. conned by Sasha Baron Cohen, something which is ludicrous on so many different levels. Mm. Uh, we have some manner of peaceful coup in Bolivia. Uh, we have the Great Barrington Declaration, which sounds a lot more lofty than I think it actually is, but Indeed. we'll talk about that. Uh, more developments on the story of Hunter Biden and and the the uh, alleged laptop containing his alleged emails, which now apparently contains a lot of things. If you believe social media, mm. so that's what we're going to be talking about shortly. If you'd like to hear about that, and you are currently a patron, then you're in luck because you can just like that. Don't have to do a single thing. Um, if you would like to hear about that and you're not currently a patron, then you can just become one. Just as simple as that. Just just go all Judith Collins and say, just I, I, I would just simply become a patron. That's the sort of thing she'd say. Do we really want Judith Collins as a patron of this podcast? I want anyone who wants to be a patron of this podcast to be a patron of this podcast. Hmm. We may mm. have to have a discussion after this podcast about that attitude. Are you, do you going to have plans about my, my issues with my plans to dig up Hitler's corpse and make him a patron of this podcast? We're definitely having a conversation about how this works after the podcast. <sighs> Fine. Um, yes, if you want to become a patron, go to... Now, actually, I looked it up, and it is patreon.com slash podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. All one word, I think. But if I have got that wrong, just search for the podcaster's guide to conspiracy. You'll find us just fine. Um, or you can go to conspiracism.podbean.com, which is where this podcast is, is officially hosted, and they have their own patronage scheme there as well. And actually, all the details are listed in the show notes of this very podcast you're listening to. Mm, so there you have it. Uh, and I don't think there's anything else we need to say right now. No, other than we're not masturbating on camera. Quite, uh, you can be sure of that. I guarantee it.
Goodbye. Hurrah. Mm. been listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy starring josh addison and dr mrx dentit which is written researched recorded and produced by josh and m you can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its podbean or patreon campaigns and if you need to get in contact with either josh or m you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their twitter accounts mikey fluids and conspiracism December was a night.